Hello, you're very welcome to episode 101 of FNI Rap Chat. Thank you so much to everyone who uh, listened to episode 100 and gave us some lovely feedback. Um, it was brilliant to be able to put that episode together. I really enjoyed it. Um, we also got a lovely write-up uh, in the in IFTN uh, that you can check out, uh, iftn.ie, uh, just about... Uh, how the podcast came about and everything and uh, what we plan to do with it. Um, so this week on the show, uh, Hugh Farley, head of the Irish uh, Writers Guild. Uh, Hugh was someone we were supposed to get on before all this happened. Um, uh, as soon as we heard he was taking over, uh, he we really wanted to get him on. Um, but uh, for obvious reasons, that didn't happen. So... Uh, but it was still a great uh, time, actually worked out great to get him on at this time. And it was our first one that we did over Skype. Um, I think the the sound is actually pretty good. Uh, so, But bear with us, we, we hope to kind of improve on this. Um, we're going to invest in uh, some good mics for using online and stuff like that. Um, but I think this is a good effort. Uh, I think <laughs> it won't be a chore to listen to. Um, Hugh was, uh, was such a great person to talk to at this time. Um, he's really abreast of everything is on top of all the kind of things that are happening um, in terms of funding and uh, kind of gives a good global picture. Um, bleak as it might be uh, at times um, there's also some silver linings there as well uh, so yeah I really encourage um, everyone in the in the industry to have a listen to this and also um, I've been a member of the guild uh, for a number of years uh, so any writers out there um, considering uh, joining it's it's really worth the, the 50 euro a year it's uh, a brilliant organisation um, great to be part of uh, a group of like-minded people and uh, they they do really great work um so yeah speaking of you know keeping in your network um f and i have been organizing online meetups and they're going to be doing some online classes and that so uh keep an eye on those um they're, they're a really great way of just keeping in touch with people and not falling out of the loop um so yeah uh thanks again for everyone who to everyone who listened and contributed to the podcast uh for episode 100 we really appreciate it and uh yeah let's go to hugh farley Farley joining us over Skype. Thank you very much. How are you getting on uh, with the new circumstances? Are you working from home? Yes, I certainly am, Paul. Um, thanks very much for asking me on. It's a kind of strange time. Uh, fortunately for me, and I suspect like most writers actually, uh, it doesn't make a huge impact in terms of my working time uh, i am working from home and actually in a funny way i'm busier than i've ever been really what's what's gratifying i think is uh since the shutdown has occurred uh, we have within the guild been trying to do whatever we can to provide information and to talk to uh, the various uh, organizations that are impacted by this. What's been really gratifying is that they have been um, very, very interested in engaging with us, which has not always been the case in the past. I think everybody sees the huge magnitude of what the country is going through. And certainly this is a business which relies not only in terms of when it's in physical production, people have to be close to each other. But also, if you take the film side, uh, it essentially, there's a big question about what the future of the feature business can be if independent cinema doesn't have cinemas that people can go to see the movies in. Yeah, there are a lot of articles and videos uh, about you know can Hollywood survive and uh, let alone Hollywood like with all their resources uh, 
in, independent and kind of um, you know different national cinemas. How how do you feel there is a little bit of um, maybe people are being a bit over the top with their fears, or do you think that those are are they're they're valid? I think they're incredibly valid. I think there are a couple of uh, worrying aspects to this. So the first thing is um, I've been reading in the papers uh, just today. They're saying that there might need there may be at least three waves of pandemic before we achieve this mythic um, herd immunity where we can rely on um, the virus not having a significant impact on what we are, um, the, you know, what the impact is on, on the, the national community. So I think that in practical terms, until such time as there is a, uh, some kind of um, um, medicine de- designed to prevent it spreading, I think that we're going to be looking at various rolling, uh, self-isolating or or shutdowns of different parts of the economy. And so theatre and cinema are going to be hugely impacted by that. Now, when you take into account that in terms of the vast majority of theatrical exhibition in Europe is done through multiplexes, um, traditionally, about 25% of the content that's shown in European cinemas is of European origin. The rest is American. You can see that um, a lot of that exhibition is going to be through specialist independent cinemas. And those are the ones which are the least likely to survive because they're not going to be backed by a multinational. And those are exactly the kind of films that we make bit worrying <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah yeah to absolutely. say the least um well are you seeing like is there any sort of leadership say from say organizations like media europe or you know are, are people our are organizations trying to get a, out ahead of this or what can be done yeah that's the the really interesting thing, um, just on Thursday, Screen Ireland announced a very comprehensive series of measures which are um, designed to help alleviate some of the, the, the issues, to, to pump some capital into the, uh, the audiovisual sector. And uh, it's incredibly welcome. And, and what they're planning to do is to provide slate funding for production companies. Uh, which they've put, I think, €3 million into, which is a very substantial amount of money. Um, Individual companies can apply for €200,000 loans um, under that scheme. So if you even do the basic maths on that, most companies won't even get uh, that, that much money because they won't have that many projects to qualify for the full amount. So probably that's going to spread out, my guess is 20, 30, maybe more companies will get some money in through the slate funding mechanism. There is um, a creative development fund for directors for the first time, which I think is very welcome. And then for writers, there is a dedicated fund which will uh, provide additional funding in the spotlight scheme, which is for uh, less experienced writers. And then for the screenplay only format, there will also be some some uh, some money available. So those kinds of uh, support schemes are going to be incredibly helpful in terms of putting money in people's pockets, uh, you know, we hope fairly soon. But on the transnational level, and this is the surprising thing, we haven't heard a lot. I mean, we're a part of the European uh, Federation of Screenwriters, and they have been trying to get some answers from uh, from the EU, but there hasn't been an awful lot of concrete action specifically in this area. I don't know why. Really? Uh, that is a bit worrying, I guess. It is. Um, but you can see that the EU, for example, has been rather slow. It's been the national governments that have been driving a lot of the restrictions and the, the management of the whole COVID-19 crisis, not the trans-European state, 
which is, I think, kind of surprising, but maybe that says something about the uh, difference in style between Urs Ursula von, von der Leyen and her predecessor. Uh, perhaps she's less keen on big government. Um, and uh, in terms of, say, the broadcasters here are, are in Ireland, um, are they being a bit quieter? Are they... Do you think there's plans in the work, works there for a similar something similar to Screen Ireland? That's a really good question, and I wish I had an answer to share. Um, RT finds itself between a rock and a hard place. I suppose at one level, um, it is a really, really good thing for RT for people to recognize that at this time of you know, international crisis, there is a reliable news source and a current affairs operation, which we can parse and analyze, you know, the, the various moves that uh, are happening on a social and political level. And I think that's no harm, because I think very much in the public mind in the last 10 years, and also in the political mind, the question of what is RTE for? Is it worth anything? Is it worth our license fee. Uh, I think people have been asking questions about that, uh, somewhat unfairly, I think. And um, so I think to that degree, I think they've done a, a fantastic job of keeping us informed and keeping the, the fires burning, as it were. I think on the creative side, I think it's very difficult for them. So if we look at scripted content for a moment, of course, they're their two big outputs are um, Fair City, which has essentially had to shutter its doors. And then they have, within their drama department, they try to do approximately two, two and a half dramas a year. And they have, certainly, I think they have at least two or three on the shelf. But everything else is essentially frozen. The question in everybody's mind, certainly within the writing community, is how quickly Fair City can go on tap. So there are two issues there. The first is, of course, that uh, there needs to be a lead time between production and transmission of usually um, you'd like at least a month. So assuming that things were lifted on the 1st of May, for example, if they won't be, but let's assume they were, um, yeah. you would need to be in production from the 1st of May right through to the 31st before you could start transmitting any of that to allow... Um, in case there's any kind of natural disaster, you like you have got a shooting date that's washed out, or there's some technical problem, or somebody dies, or something like that. So you never want to find yourself um, that pressed for time. You need to have some some space. So that's one aspect. The second aspect is, uh, although they have um, they had a number of scripts in commission and they've paid for that work, uh, they're not commissioning anything further because they don't know what situation they're writing for. Um, the problem is so many storylines, let's say love storylines, or or let's say somebody's got a bad debt and they're trying to, uh, they're trying to be on the run from whoever is uh, supposed to be chasing them. A, a lot of soaps rely on environments which are essentially community that is to say that they could meet in coffee shops in bars on the street and so forth well until we actually know what the shape of what life looks beyond the COVID-19 crisis it's very hard to write things which are actually represent the world that we actually live in so there's no point of reference um, the do you think collectively there seems to be a sense of say nothing until we hear we hear more? <laughs> you know, people don't want to commit uh, to any great degree to any long-term strategies. There is no you know quick fix, obviously. I mean, things are not going to. It's not a light switch moment. Things are not going to go back to normal as uh, you know. You know, certainly not in the in the short term. Do you think that? Uh, do you think people are kind of keeping their cards close to their because they just really don't know what, what's going to happen next. Absolutely. I mean, look, RT has never been exactly a bastion of um, open communication mm. um, at the best of times. But in fairness to them, I would, uh, to quote William Goldman, nobody knows anything. Uh, not only do they know what kind of production will be possible, 
um, but also then what is it the world what is the world that they're supposed to be representing going to be like mm-hmm. so I I do have uh, actually a certain amount of sympathy for them um, about how how things are going to unfold and I don't think uh, reasonably they can anticipate what might be the case i know everybody would love them to say this is going to be this but i don't i don't think it's going to be that simple and i mean there also there's another factor which is you know we we've we've long known that rt has been running a deficit and d forbes has been uh, campaigning very hard to try and get additional funds into the into their coffers either through uh uh, better uptake of the license fee or through some additional funding mechanism um, that really hasn't got an awful lot of traction and you'd have to say that with all the cash that the government is putting into supporting society at the moment there is of course going to be a day perhaps in 2021 where the brakes are put on pretty abruptly as we start to transition to a more normal times and so there's going to be no political appetite for increased license fee. In fact, it may be quite the reverse. And there is a sense, I don't know if you guys feel it, where there is a possibility the world may never be the same again. And I I know that sounds very apocalyptic, but you could imagine a situation, for example, where uh, in the future, uh, a government might say, well, you know what? Uh, given that you've got an aging demographic, given that most people switch on to uh, streaming services rather than into terrestrial television in the way they, they did in the past, maybe we should consider something very, very radical in relation to RTE. And for example, it may be that they impose um, uh, very draconian cuts. And I mean, something like that was almost um, subliminally flagged by uh, Mr. Bruton last year when he established this uh, commission to look at the future of public service broadcasting now is a you know or within the next couple of months could be a perfect opportunity to make tough economic decisions what could there be a kind of a, a silver lining in terms of this you kind of touched on it that I I, I do feel like people's um, attitude towards RT and, and I think uh, we discussed this before here Hugh, where we need to not think of RT as RT RT is it's one of the favourite pastimes for Irish people to skip out about RT but we need to think of it more in terms of public service broadcasting and the benefits of that um, do you think that maybe there could be a little shift I, I, I feel like they've done a pretty good job uh, of covering this uh, and will uh, exception of a couple of gaffes, but could it? Could, what could we do as industry professionals? Should we? How should we react to that? And and should we be kind of trying to support and bolster because we we need RT to keep going. We need, you know, the concept of public service broadcasting to keep <laughs> continue. I completely agree with you. I, although I've outlined a rather doomsday scenario, it's not a scenario that I endorse. I think that it's very important for writers to support, and indeed all creative artists, to support public service broadcasting. I think it's one of those phrases which is um, um, frequently said but poorly understood. I think that... um, The problem is that people perceive it not as a public service, but as something which is just there, like water, and you only notice it in its absence. And and, uh, I think the fundamental point about whether it has to be, uh, whether it is Tichikahar or uh, RTE, is that they provide us with access to our culture, with culture as it is, expressed now uh, to some degree and the the option of shuttering rte or tjkahar or in greatly reducing the content that they produce and transmit is to ensure that you will not see an irish perspective on on current affairs you won't hear irish voices talking about uh, 
Irish life, and you won't see what we've been going through, what our experiences have been in this this time and over the last couple of years expressed in drama. And I think drama is one of the ways in which we understand and make sense of the changes that are happening in our society. And without a public service system, whether it happens to have the brand of RTE or TG Care, I know that as a nation will be much the worse for it. You know, I think that the problem is that when people try and sell public service broadcasting, people think of it as being medicine that's good for you. You kind of know that you 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 ought to take it, but you don't have to like it. And I think that we really need to uh, reevaluate how we talk uh, about that and when we're trying to promulgate support for it amongst the general public. Um that's a really important factor because the conversation has shifted entirely into a conversation about how much Joe Duffy and Ryan Tuberty make. And I think that's completely the wrong argument. Mm. What do you think individual, like surely as individual creatives, you know, regardless of what their roles are in the industry should be, this should be a case of everybody galvanizing together and and creating more of a sense of albeit underground a community uh how, how do you what can individual not just writers but individual creatives be doing uh individually and collectively during this time to bolster and and, and best prepare for what whatever's next i mean obviously writers write and they write and that's what they should be doing now as they were doing before and will be doing in the future but um what what do you think is the best course of action for the individual to be uh busying themselves with as it were that's a really great question. I think that, of course, what sustains you as an artist is your work. And I think that there is an appetite to support artists, whether they happen to be writers, performers or directors, in a way that I haven't experienced in the 30 odd years that I've been in this business. And I think that comes out of a recognition that uh, rather like Benjamin Franklin famously said during the American Revolution, he said to the other revolutionary leaders, if we don't hang together now, we'll hang separately later. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that is absolutely true for the entire creative community. There is a sense of... Uh, people looking in the whites of other people's eyes and realizing that this is very serious and we have to look at ways in which we can get as aligned as possible. I think it's really important for writers as a community to talk about the kind of um, content that there is an appetite for producing and to support each other in generating that. I think that we will have to increasingly accept that um, uh, state funding um, through broadcasting as a for instance, and probably in the feature film sector um, going forward, I would say between 2021 and 2025 is going to be extremely diminished. And so to keep us in the business of writing, I think we have to be looking at content that we can generate and sell overseas. And of course, the irony is, is that the, the only people who are going to walk away from this whole terrible time with more money in the bank than they started out with are the streamers. And they have um, both the advantage of having very, very large coffers, which are being filled. I read one statistic in the last two weeks that suggested that uh, streaming subscriptions have risen worldwide by 30 percent mm -hmm. now there's very few companies that would have seen that kind of growth except perhaps in the face mask manufacturer business and um, I, I do think that there is an opportunity to sell great content overseas mm -hmm. i know that for example screen skills ireland has funded a series of uh, show what, what do they call them um writer's room in la where they they've taken i think three maybe four irish writers now the pretty experienced writers and given them an opportunity to circulate around a number of writers rooms over a, a very intensive one-week period in los angeles and i know that 
several of the people who've been on those opportunities, they've run it twice now, mm-hmm. and I don't doubt they'll do it again, um, have then used that experience and the contacts that they had made in order to try to write and develop their own series, which they could pitch more internationally. More internationally, exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, that's yeah. good. We, we, we need that. Do you believe... I suppose one, if there's any positive in terms of a lot of the writers that I know, is that they're forced to actually speak to other people <laughs> in these circumstances. And and with the advent of like Zoom calling and conferencing, and you know, even the way that we're working now, um, can only be a good thing. It will bring these people out into the open. They will, you know, bring their work to the fore and will will sell themselves better. And then as a result, become better business uh, entities as well, which I think is. The biggest, you know, it's that Irish psychological hang up we have about, uh, about underselling ourselves and I don't know, post colonial hangover or whatever. Mm. Um, we need to be working together. We need to be more out in the open. We need to be selling our wares a little bit more, uh, more actively now, more than ever, I guess. Um, and, and that's a positive, I, I think, if there is any positive in any of this. I think you're right. I think that the one of the skill sets that most writers do not have is the ability to market themselves no, they're diabolical <laughs> um, they're very poor at talking about the work that they're creating even though they're creating amazing work um, and i do think that organizations like screen skills ireland do recognize that we have been talking with them about uh, a number of lines of um initiatives which can help support writers better and part of those are looking at soft skills i think they've always been historically very good at teaching you know narrative skills screen story um structure and so on and so forth so forth what we're now looking at is seeing how can we support writers better by helping them even something as simple as understanding what is effective networking I mean, I can tell you that I've spent most of my life uh, going to um, official functions and uh, general meetings and so forth with the vague notion that I was going to, quote unquote, network. And what I actually ended up doing was finding a corner of the room where I found one or two people that I already knew and I hugged a glass until it was time to leave. And that doesn't constitute networking because it doesn't come naturally to most people. And and you have to think about it and and develop a little bit of a strategy about how you are going to get to know people and, and get them to know your work in a way that isn't obnoxious. Yeah, yeah. yeah. well, I, there's not enough bottom line networking in this country. I mean, when you go to these events, surely the the modus operandi should be to this is what this is who I am. This is what I have to sell. This, you know, that kind of quite literally bringing your cow to the market and saying, "This is what it is. Do you want to buy this?" No. Okay, thank you. Move on. I mean, it's not a book club. It's not, you know, uh, you know. The, the, we need to be better at this. We need to be, and 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 from my own experiences, a hell of a lot less judgmental. Um, that's that's the problem. If I sent you to sell my work, or your friend's work, or somebody who's writing you really admired, you wouldn't have the slightest problem with it. You would walk up mm. to somebody and say, "I've I've read this amazing script." Yeah, this by, guy is fucking you. great. You need yeah, to, you need, I just you need to make this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's really, really hard for us to go and do that about our own work, and we have to, um, we have to work really hard about how we have to get over that. ourselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we do. The good news is that, as I say, through organisations like Screen Skills Ireland, who we are collaborating with strongly to try to help design courses which are more meaningful in a holistic way to writers' professional lives and other initiatives that we're going to take uh, as a guild, uh, I think that there is going to be increased supports there. I suppose, although we've been talking in a rather downbeat way, I do want to switch on to some of the good news. And that is, I think, that there is an increased recognition by uh, our funders that we need more capital to be able to service our members better. A simple, for instance, is 
because of our funding restrictions, we've been holding events, too many events, in my view, in Dublin. And yet we have a membership which is countrywide. I want to be able to put more content out there for our members nationally, whether that's in an online environment as, as we currently uh, have to experience it. And you're going to see, I should say, I hope over the next couple coming weeks and months, you're going to see a lot more content going up uh, from the Guild, which we hope is going to be practical and useful and morale yeah. building. And right. that is directly coming out of funding, new funding, which is being made available both by Screen Ireland and Screen Skills Ireland. Absolutely. And we've been, over the last couple of weeks with Film Network Ireland, we've been rolling, we've been trialing software with the company called Hopin, um, the conference conference calling and so on, and it's incredibly effective, um, just in terms of uh, there's one-on-one -on -one kind of group, it does one-on-one kind of Russian roulette uh, uh, networking where you chat to somebody for a couple of moments, or a few minutes, up to five minutes. And then there are kind of sessions, group sessions that you can use, which I think are really, really helpful in, in, in terms of like Screen Ireland should be using similar software on a regular basis. We've tried now over the last couple of weeks. We've had a couple of hundred up to 300 over the last two weeks jump on and use this software. Wow. Um, it, it is the way forward. And like, the, again, one of the major positives here is that more people are becoming more and more inclined to use this now, and it's um, we need to be communicating in this way. I mean, I don't know how many times, even in the last three or four months, I've gone all the way into town for a meeting, and I didn't need to. Mm. <laughs> so we need to be more efficient in that way, use this in, in the way it was developed, and 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 exploit it in the way in, in the best way possible because I, I think a lot of the time why people they miss out on opportunities because of uh, um, you know their own insecurities their own um, uh, you know, insecurities and they they need to be they need to be using this to its full advantage not just I'm, I I don't work for that company so it's not it's not a plug-in deliberately but we like in whatever capacity. Uh, or whatever particular company we're using, we need to get. We need to use this. We need to utilize it more, and therefore it brings us all together uh, more, more productively. And it becomes less of an alien experience when you're doing business like that internationally. Should your career, uh, you know, go that way? I completely agree with you. I think in a post-COVID nineteen environment, I think that you're going to see far less physical meetings and far more virtual meetings, and that can't be a bad thing. I'd like to return to something you said about uh, essentially speed dating events, virtual speed dating events, and I think they are incredibly useful. But I do think that, for example, to enhance, I'm a big fan of trying to design opportunities which are set up to succeed and not to fail. And I think that um, too often speed dating uh, are literally relying on two people being able to connect in a very short period of time or not. And I don't like those odds so much. I actually mm -hmm. think if you thought about it for a moment and you wanted to get two people to get to know each other quickly and form a very favorable opinion of each other, wouldn't it be great to have somebody say, hey, Paul, there's this person I want you to meet. Look, here is Tony. Uh, Tony is a really interesting producer. He's just made two low budget films. and He's really interested in horror films. And strangely enough, Paul, I know you've got a great horror script. Why don't you tell Tony about that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's, that's a brilliant <laughs> suggestion. And we're going to suggest it because we, we were in contact with the developer of that software. And we're going to suggest that now as, as a result of that. Because, yeah, I mean, a, a referral option, we quite literally drag and drop two names that you think are going to have like a house on fire. Yeah. For creatively or, or professionally would be <laughs> would be something that would work better. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And to have somebody who talks up both sides, who finds the connection. You don't rely on somebody who might be a terrific writer, but a poor communicator to fall back on the strength or weakness of their personality. You know, you actually do a little bit of the heavy lifting, you know, and you make it that assist, which makes it easier for them to make the connection. Absolutely. This to, is my friend, John, who's an oddball, but he's a fantastic writer. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, you know, they're the type of conversations you need to have, yeah. <laughs> frankly, you know. Yeah. And, um, and you, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, go on. Yeah, just to um, 
just to talk a little bit about on uh, your career leading up to this, uh, I know we don't have too much more time, but just a little. I know you have a fascinating career, and then just to talk about how you came to the guild, and then I'd love to just give a give a bit of a plug to the guild. I've been a member for ma- uh, many years, and just for anyone who's listening, um, why why it would be important to support the guild uh, who uh, for any writers who aren't members out there sure well the guild has over 525 members who are either writing for radio film or tv or theater um the reality is that many of them uh, are also working in other jobs and one of the things that we've been campaigning for consistently with Screen Ireland is saying, look, we don't believe that writers are fairly remunerated for the work that they do. They can't earn a consistent living from the outcome of their principal creative activity. And you are never going to get uh, real growth in the business if people can't devote themselves full time to the generating of great ideas and great characters and great plots instead of rushing out of the house or their office to go do the job that actually puts the bread on the table and for too long that situation has just been accepted as a kind of a status quo thing in the same way as people were prepared to accept that uh, women should routinely be paid less than men just because they're women and i think we have to challenge those notions that writers should uh, just write for the sheer pleasure of it in in the same way as it's obviously fallacious to suggest that for example an architect might design your office building just because sure don't they love drawing things (laughs) you don't want to be paid for that (laughs) you know there are some types of artistic activity of which architecture is one of them perhaps um computer design uh, software design might be another where it's absolutely accepted that it is a full-time job for which you should be paid a proper professional fee but somehow or other people who are writers or sculptors or painters sure it's it's, it's about the love of us they don't need to be paid for it yeah which is obviously landed on your feet yeah so to come back a little bit to one of the other parts of your question, to talk a little bit about my background, uh, I've been in the business for, I counted up just recently, 32 years. Uh, the first job I had was as an extra on a, um, a French made-for-television film that was being shot in Dublin. And uh, I had always had the bug I loved film and television. I was one of those kids who found Halliwell's Film Guide and just consumed it. And back in the day, you could really give yourself a brilliant film education by looking at BBC Two and Channel Four on a Friday, Saturday or Sunday night. Uh, You could see basically the best of world cinema. Sadly, most of those things have now disappeared. And unless you're prepared to have a DVD collection, and even that seems like an old fashioned notion at the moment, uh, it's very hard to really get to grips with some of the great classics of of cinema. So anyway, I had this this bug and I knew that I wanted to pursue a career in that, even though it seemed like a crazy thing at the time. And I went to DIT, uh, which was then called the College of Commerce, uh, and they had a communication studies course. I did that for three years. I graduated there. Uh, And um, then because I had an American girlfriend who wanted to spend more time with me in America, she suggested I apply to some film schools in America. So I did. Uh, not having the slightest uh, belief that anything might mature from it. And one by one, sure enough, they kindly wrote back to me and confirmed my opinion of myself <laughs> uh, until uh, the final one arrived. Uh, and uh, it was from New York University. And I I received the letter when I came home um, after a particularly kind of tough day um, doing this kind of dead end job. And 
I ripped it open as I was consuming my shepherd's pie and it said that they were delighted to tell me. I paused. I said they were delighted to reject me. I mean, now that was going to add uh, vinegar to my wound. At least the other one said they regretted rejecting me. Now I had some somebody saying they were delighted to tell me that I wasn't going to get into their film program. Well, I read on and I discovered that I had been accepted. And uh, I was able through a, a series of um, machinations to be able to get through the entire film program at NYU when I graduated in the late 80s. And I went wow. on. Uh, yeah. So that was an incredible experience. And I enjoyed that very much. And then, of course, like every graduate, I just came out and I was effectively unemployable. So I spent <laughs> I spent a, a year in the wilderness before I finally bagged a job in Granada as a researcher. And that turned into my first directing gig. And I became a director of documentaries and lifestyle programs for about 10 years until about 1999. And then in an attempt to try and move myself into what is now called scripted content, I made a short film and that got me my first gig on a uh, soap, uh, Rus Rune, which is produced by T.G. Cahar. And from that, I went on to direct um, Fair City, Hollyoaks, and then a lot more on, on, on Rus Rune. And I, I really, really enjoyed my time working as a director on on those shows they are an incredible training ground in fact i think that they're one of the things that are most underrated as a resource you know when people say well we don't have very much money what can we really do well what we can do is we can put young writers or new writers because they're not necessarily rather than discriminating and say that every new writer is a young writer but uh, new writers should be given an opportunity to write on the soaps because they have a lot of scripts to get through. And the repetition of uh, working in a very structured environment where the characters are known and the plots are given to you is a fantastic training ground for any writer and equally true for directors and young, young or new exper inexperienced performers. So you could use that as a test bed uh, to start people off, to give them their confidence, to give them an opportunity to clock up a number of scripts. <clears throat> and most importantly, to um, generate some income for themselves before going on to writing their own material, which they may find a market for. I just want to take it right back in terms of, of, of your kind of earliest influences in terms of cinema. Um, what got you so hooked? Was there a particular film or earliest memory you have which you think was, uh, was uh, I suppose, set you on, on, on the road in which you've, you've followed over the last, as you said, 30-odd years, 40 years? I have a abiding love of movies from the golden age of Hollywood, in particular uh, Hitchcock and Wells mm -hmm. and uh, American independent cinema of the 70s. Just as I was reaching maturation, I was exposed to the most incredible films of Scorsese, um, uh, Coppola, uh, John Milius and so forth, and they had a really inspirational impact upon me, particularly because I think they were made by very forceful people who had a very clear way of articulating their vision of what cinema should be. So what I particularly liked about filmmakers like Hitchcock was his ability to put you inside an experience. Uh, one of my favorites is in Notorious, where Alicia Huberman is a spy sent by the Americans to infiltrate a neo-Nazi group in Latin America. And she has to get a key from her husband to get to see what's in the cellar. She and her erstwhile lover, Cary Grant, meet in the cellar and they furrow around trying to find out what is, is hidden down there. And just as they find out what it is, the husband comes down with the butler and they have a, a great screenwriting choice. They either go or stay. They'll either be caught 
or they will f- escape. But what Hitchcock and his screenwriter contrive is a third way. Um, in or- what Cary Grant does is he goes and he kisses Ingrid Bergman. He does the one thing that she wants him to do because she's in love with him. But he does it not because he loves her, but because he knows that this is the thing that will be a plausible excuse for her husband to believe it would be easier for her to believe that uh, she was being unfaithful rather than the secret gets exposed. And I love that idea that the audience is sent uh, either left or right. And then you realize there's actually a third direction. I thought that was just brilliant writing. (laughs) It's amazing how these uh, things stick with us throughout our career, you know, and that that, it sounds like that's really informed your, and a style style of dry, of writing and your sense of drama. Completely. I mean, I should say that um, I write, I produce, and I direct, and I continue to write and direct. Although I'm full time with the guild, I am allowed to take uh, other opportunities. I've just completed uh, production on a comedy series for kids uh, for RTE, which is based uh, on making fun of Ireland's history, to be quite honest. And it was an absolute joy. I was a part of a writing team. Uh, I wrote one of the episodes and we had uh, five other writers working on the other episodes. And then I got to make them all. And that is just, there is something, I'll tell you, there is something fantastic about when you write something and then when you get to direct the same material, being able to go, this is exactly what I meant when I wrote <laughs> yeah. that. And what's that called? Or when so the show is called Blasts from the Past, yeah. and we think it might go on in, in autumn. That was when it was planned for, but yeah. the way things are going with RTE, it may, they may need some original content, and they may want to put it out much earlier. I don't know yet. Yeah. Um, and just for anyone who might be thinking about jo- joining the Guild or... Uh, you know, as a writer, what would you say to them? I think I would. Str- I think I would strongly encourage it because writing can be a very lonely place, and I think that uh, to have a community of other writers, both at the same level as yourself and also people who are more experienced, is to feel less isolated. <clears throat> I think the other thing is from the business side is that the guild will help you with any contracts that you may want to negotiate because very often contracts are written by the producing the producer or the production company and they're always written in their favor. So if you are scared of legalese, we will provide the uh, for free uh, the advice on the framing of that contract and terms which you might find are unfavorable and thirdly i suppose it's because uh, in broad terms the guild will be fighting your corner in terms of find making um, better conditions better pay and to ensure that you get the training and mentoring that will help you advance in your career Brilliant. Um, I know you're a bit stuck for time, um, but w- we always just ask a question towards the end of uh, uh, if you could give yourself advice when you were starting out, what would that advice have been? The advice I would have given myself would be uh, believe in yourself. And trust that if you have a desire to write and an appetite to rewrite, you will find somebody who will connect with that material. Don't be afraid to fail. Don't be afraid of... I used to have terrible writer's block as a writer. And uh, I overcame that, actually. I discovered that when I was being commissioned to write something and I had a deadline, I just wrote. So I treat any work that is um, uh, spec work, I just treat that as though it is a deadline that I've got to please somebody else for. And that removes the block. I just sit down and I just write. 
And I think that knowing that it only God gets it right the first time, it's fine to write utter nonsense and to be typing and go, this is the worst dialogue ever. You go, that's fine, because you can start a second draft and fix all that stuff. And now you're relieved the pressure of blank pages. You actually have stuff there and you're actually now overwriting and it somehow becomes a far less daunting task. Brilliant. Um, that's great advice. Is there any other points you'd like to make just in terms of uh, where we're at at the moment? Yeah, I want to mention something. Yeah, I want to mention something which might sound dull, but actually might make a real difference to screenwriters' lives. So there is a European directive that was passed uh, by the European Parliament last year, which is called the European Copyright Directive. What it will do when it's transposed into national law is it will guarantee that uh, writers and directors will have to receive for any production that they're involved in an annual uh, report from the producer about how much money it made and for them to receive additional compensation if it's done well. Yeah, I I think that could be probably the most valuable piece of information any screenwriting professional uh, will pick up over the next, you know, especially in these very uncertain times going forward. And the key thing about it is that it guarantees a thing called fair remuneration. So, for example, if you were hired by a producer to make a low-budget film, let's take an example. Let's say it's something like Once, and he says, "Look, the director is getting ten grand. I'm taking ten grand. Here's ten grand." And you make the movie, and it uh, goes to Cannes or Sundance, and somebody picks it up, and suddenly it now makes fifteen million in America. Under this scheme, the producer will have to compensate you if he receives additional, he or she, I should say, receives additional compensation for that success because you have to fairly be remunerated for its success. Okay. So important. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Well, Hugh, thanks so much for taking the time. Uh, We really appreciate it. Best of luck with uh, the work that you're doing. Uh, with the guild and your own work as well um uh, so just maybe on a final word just on how people can uh find out more about the guild what's the website so our website is www.script.ie and you can contact us at info at script.ie we'd be delighted to hear from you brilliant that's great thanks so much it's my pleasure thank you very much for asking me